Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Worried you'll need to babysit your robot vacuum? Think again. Meet Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum with AI-powered navigation to recognize and avoid over 100 objects. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards. And Digital Trends says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Hello, and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, hundreds of audio companies sign an equality pact to fight racism in the industry, editors at top US publications quit over workplace culture, and some of Britain's favourite comedies are pulled from streaming sites. Plus, the BBC has a new DG and Microsoft discover the downside of letting artificial intelligence curate their homepage. And in the media quiz, we play your cards right in celebration of Alan Carr's epic game show. It's all to come on today's media podcast. And joining me today, the MD of Production House, Gold Waller, is back. It's Faraz Osman. Hello, Faraz. Hello, Production House. I quite like that, considering I'm stuck in my own house. It's like, that seems <laughs> deliciously apt. How is uh, touting for work going during lockdown, Faraz? Have you been on any nice walks with commissioners? It's actually been better than we expected. I, sh- I don't want to kind of be that guy, but we've been quite lucky. We had a documentary go out on BBC Three called My Mates and Muslim... Um, uh, which went out last month and did really well. We filmed that entirely in lockdown. Um, We just started doing some stuff for BBC Education. Uh, We just delivered some stuff for Own It, which is the BBC's digital literacy brand. So we've been busier than we expected to be, which is always nice. And it definitely feels like people are starting to take calls and return emails now. Also with us today, digital editor from Immediate Media, Rebecca Messina is back on the show. Hello, Rebecca. Hello, Ollie. Hi. Um, I did find myself reading reviews of the best pink gins on the Your Homestyle website the other day, and I've been led to believe that you've had a hand in that. Was that your work? I, I literally added one today, in fact. Was um, it the Marabou Rosé? Because that's the one that got me excited. No, it was the um, Didsbury Strawberry and Sicilian Lemon. Really oh. nice. Had some the other day. So when we were in the office, we would do like a taste test and we'd have the same six or seven people and we'd all try them. Um, and now obviously it's kind of this one was a sort of a one woman operation so I had to drink it like four different ways to work out (laughs) what was the best one in the name of journalistic integrity so new website for your home style and you mentioned being in the office what's it like being uh, immediate at the moment when presumably still not everyone is in the office and some people are worried about their jobs it's been going really well actually yeah it's just getting used to the the zoom thing and I think most people have now actually find sometimes it's easier to get hold of people over Zoom, you know, sometimes I spend half the day going up and down the stairs at the office and, you know, finding the same people still aren't at their desk or still in a meeting. Sometimes it's actually easier to track people down. I think people are quite conscious of looking like they're available for calls, you know, because they don't want people to think they're out walking the dog or doing Pilates or something. <laughs> uh, and uh, also returning to us from Don't Skip Media podcaster Christina Moore. Hi, Christina. Hi. 
Hello. Now, since you were last on the show, you've opened a podcast studio with, I mean, frankly, appalling timing. <laughs> How's <laughs> that been going? <laughs> Brutal. Um, yeah, so the idea was that I would open a studio that was suitable for people who uh, either have small businesses or they're self-employed. Uh, so that includes authors, um, influencers, and they don't always want to record in their home. So the, the tagline is you might work from home but your home isn't always open for business and it's uh that's who the studio is for great stuff where's it based and when do you reopen it's based in kentish town okay and with a bit of luck we'll reopen next week (laughs) good because that's the thing i mean location you know we in podcasting people gloss over that because you can do it from anywhere as we're demonstrating but i mean if you're going to have a studio somewhere really it does have to be in zone one or two if you're in london doesn't it yeah, I mean, it was. I did a little bit of a survey before I opened, and most people weren't willing to travel much further than Zone Two. <laughs> uh, now, Christina, let's start with you actually, because you were one of the launch partners for the new Equality in Audio Pact. Tell us yeah. a bit about that and how you got involved in it. Yeah, so this was more or less off the back of all the protests that had been happening both here in the UK, but especially in America around uh, George Floyd. And it, while we can't do anything about policing, we can do something about the way we treat inclusion and representation um, in media formats, whether that's TV or audio. I specifically work on audio. And so Renee... Renee Richardson, uh, alumnus of the podcast. Yes, yes. Um, uh, She's the CEO and founder of Broccoli Content. Um, She works really hard with her team on setting up some five points, a pact, in fact. So the first point is to pay interns. So um, you may or may not be surprised that even though it's illegal, a lot of people find or a lot of companies find a way to get around paying interns. Number two is hire people from the LGBTQ IA plus community, black people, people of colour and other minorities. So we've had a few comments based on uh, the second point, uh, one of them being it should include people with disabilities and perhaps we should have a focus on uh, ageism. But uh, we included the and other minorities um, within the the podcast and audio industry um, to include to be inclusive in that way. Uh, and actually, and, you didn't finish that yeah. bullet point. It's not just hire them; it's hire them for projects that are not only related to their identity, right? Exactly. Exactly. And can we let's expand on that a little bit, actually? And I'll yeah. return to you, Christina, to talk through the other points of mm-hmm. that because for us, I'm curious whether that is something that you have noticed as a pernicious habit in the industry. You know, <laughs> indies will say, "Look, we've got lots of black and minority staff." because they're making a program about street music or whatever, but they're not making the discussion program for Radio 4. Yeah, it's my favourite thing that we only ever get commissioned to make brown stuff. It's like, it's, it's all I want to do. I've got no other interests apart from the colour of my skin. Why is that an issue? I think, look, I mean, the, the, this is, joking aside, th- there is a kind of a, um, a, a weird balance to be struck because on the one hand, as somebody that is from an other community you want to be the, the voice that tells those stories. And it's important that you are in the room when those, vo- then those stories get told. But but like I said, it's not the only story that you're interested in. And it's, it's really frustrating when the only work that you get or the only time people send you a brief, it's to do with your identity and not to do with the quality of your work or or the fact that you've got um, uh, 
skills and interests and and knowledge in in other spaces so you know that's kind of on us as well you know we need to do everything that we can to broadcast the sort of things that we're into and the sort of content that we need to make um and we like i said we've just done this documentary my mates are muslim uh, around ramadan you know i practice ramadan and and i'm from a, a muslim background uh, and but we wanted to demonstrate that we can take that topic and make it in a bbc3 style so that the next project that comes along it's like right they can do bbc3 now let's give them another area and and those discussions have already started happening so so we it's good to use it as a proving ground but it's really important that people don't just get completely siloed into only making content about their identity because if anything else just a bit weird okay christina carry on point number three on the five point plan what was it yeah, point number three is if you are a company that releases gender pay gap reports, uh, release your race pay uh, gap data at the same time. So some companies are obliged to release their gender pay gap. It, there have been calls to make it mandatory to release also uh, the race pay gap. But what we're saying to the companies is that if you're going to release one, release the other. Um, there shouldn't be any reason any or any more reason why you should be embarrassed about releasing the gender pay gap than you should. Should be releasing a race pay gap so well we shall see on that one yes, shall not we, we Rebecca? Will. <laughs> because uh, uh, the bbc is one of the signatories i mean well done by the way christina and renee for managing to get the bbc as well as lots of prominent indies to sign this document but i mean this is a, a newspaper story waiting to happen next year isn't it the bbc releasing race pay gap data um yeah no absolutely i mean i think we're, we're definitely going to see some probably not very surprising but depressing headlines around this it reminds me of um when they released um gender pay gap data at a company i worked at previously there was a massive discrepancy obviously and there was some backlash within the company and there was just a really tone-deaf response that was basically boiling down to the figures are skewed by bonuses and obviously the people in the higher roles are receiving bigger bonuses so and, you know, we were like, well, yeah, that's I mean, obviously, that's the exact problem that you've just described. <laughs> uh, and then, yes, point four, Christina, uh, don't just participate in panels that are not representative of the cities, towns and industries that they take place in. Mm, and that is an yeah, interesting yeah. one, um, because, you know, people do go to in the radio industry events all over the world. And I think people are aware, aren't they, that they need to have an ethnically diverse panel doesn't always happen but they're aware it's an issue this idea that you have to have someone from the place where you're doing the panel i mean i've i don't think i've ever seen it i mean it's a pact so it's more than the spirit of 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 this point is that if you're in manchester and you're holding a podcast panel or event why aren't you inviting people from manchester who create podcasts yeah it just seems like the obvious thing to do sadly not um so yeah it's just one of those things where there are some cities for instance like london where it's not just about inviting londoners to the any of the podcast festivals or any of the panels it's about making sure that in places as diverse as as london that those panels are also diverse as well um so it's not to say that if you're in i don't know i'm gonna go for hull if you're in hull and you hold a podcast panel that we expect you to have somebody represents uh, Asian people and also black people. If that's not the makeup of your population, we're not expecting that. But where it is fitting, this is where we expect that you make a very conscious decision to bring people in uh, from that community or in diverse areas to make sure that's represented. Okay, and finally, briefly, point number five. 
I feel like Paul Gambaccini now. What's in at five? <laughs> Be transparent about who works for your company as well as their role, position and permanency. So this number five has come about because some who shall remain nameless, uh, some companies uh, will put on their profiles um, a number of people from, let's, for the sake of, for lack of a better word, BAME staff and and I say that in inverted commas, and they're not, they're freelancers who they bring in specifically for point number two, which is they only hire black um, uh, Asian people and the LGBTQ plus uh, community just to fulfill their, their, let's say their quota, as in they have had a commission, they've won a commission and therefore will bring in a freelancer just for that role. Well, if they're good enough to do that, production why are they not good enough for to hire permanently if that post is open permanently okay and were you expecting this pact to do as well as it has uh, public shaming is what renee has called it i bet you've had i think more than 50 signatories now and big names on there as well as the bbc people like acar something else etc Oh, yeah, there's over 100 now. They're still coming in. Um, I think there's close to 200. No, we were not expecting it. Well, I wasn't. Anyway, I can only speak for myself. I was not expecting that many uh, people to participate. I really thought that it would be a couple of um, independent podcast houses, uh, production houses, uh, uh, who kind of wanted to spearhead change. Um, But it turns out, in the wake of all of these race conversations that uh, a lot of people are actually thinking that we need to act on it. So I'm very But it will be public that shame that has to hold people to account as well, won't it? Because there's not going to be a board who's actually in control of monitoring this stuff. Yeah, no, there is no board. Um, eventually it will have its own website, um, but there is no board that is monitoring that. And we had a meeting this morning to talk about ways that we could make it, I guess, somewhat you know, democratise it. We didn't necessarily want to control it, but we definitely needed a means of accountability. Um, So we're looking at ways that people could perhaps report things anonymously um, uh, and uh, ways we can communicate with the companies they could improve on any offences committed. Okay, well, look, I mean, well done. It's obviously been a tremendously successful thing. I should say that both of the production companies behind the media podcast, PPM and Rethink Audio, have signed up to the pact as well. Um, But Faraz, one of the things that I read that Rene said to Hot Pod, uh, the newsletter for podcasters, and to me this did strike me as a little bit strong, (laughs) was if you have a team of 10 and one black face or no black faces you are upholding white supremacy. Now, I mean, bearing in mind that, you know, uh, BAME um, employees are in a minority in the media industry, not just because they're not being employed, but because they're a minority in the country. And there are a whole range of reasons, like with internships that we've discussed, that getting into the media industry in the first place might be difficult. You can legitimately say, can't you, if you're an independent production company, we do have one black member of staff, we're working on getting more, we've employed the best people for the jobs. That doesn't make you white supremacists. I think part of what the George Floyd issue has has highlighted is that it's people just aren't listening. Like it's not enough is being done. It's too slow. And and obviously a, a lot of that is to do with 
authority and and policing and and the issues that are, are based around that but but the reality is is that this diversity conversation has been going on for so long that people like me and I'm I'm sure others are just bored of it now and if you're not going to be held to account and if the strongest language isn't going to be used then no one's going to pay attention they're just going to see it as for want of a better phrase a box ticking exercise so I think strong language is is necessary and if you want to defend yourself against not hiring people of color or not hiring people from different communities and different backgrounds um, you know, it's sometimes you're going to sit up and defend yourself harder if you're going to be called a white supremacist. And if there's a legitimate reason why you haven't been able to do it and you want to defend yourself against that, then then fine. Let's start with the most outrageous thing that you could possibly be accused of and work backwards from there. And hopefully the easiest solution is going to be hire some more diverse people rather than arguing about it. And Rebecca, obviously, this conversation is part of a much wider conversation about race that's happening specifically in America, but all over the world. But over there, there's been a bit of a reckoning this week for bosses who have allegedly created a toxic environment for black and brown staff. Uh, with resignations at US publications. Tell us about some of those. Yeah, so there was a big one at the New York Times this week. Um, The director of their editorial page uh, was forced to resign after they published an opinion piece by a US senator. Uh, The headline was Send in the Troops, and it was basically uh, suggesting that um, the military should be sent in to restore order, um, you know, due to the protests that have been taking the US by storm right across the country. Um, this had a big backlash in the New York Times office itself. Um, and James Bennett has now stepped aside and been temporarily replaced. I just think that, I mean, that in itself was really, I mean, symbolic of where this the US is right now in the sense that a piece that was written by an elected representative has met with such a backlash among, you know, uh, opponents on the, you know, progressive opponents that it has forced the editor who approved it to stand down, which I just find, you know, really shocking. I mean, if you look at the piece itself, Senator Cotton has since come forward and said, look, I didn't say send in troops to break up protests. I just said that if the police were overwhelmed, then the military would have to be sent in, which is true. But the backlash was more to do with, you know, some of the assertions he made about um, the Antifa infiltrators causing violence and about police officers bearing the brunt of the violence associated with the protests. But I do think it's like it's incredible to think that this person was elected to his office and has written a piece by his own viewpoint. And that has forced someone to have to stand down at the New York Times really just shows like, how divided the, the nation mm. really is. Well, and also in publications that aren't news publications, Bon Appetit, uh, and Refinery29 as well. Editors there stepping down amongst similar circumstances, saying they want to open the door for other people. You do wonder, you know, were they pushed before they jumped? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think this is what happens when, you know, these are sites that started off quite small and have, you know, ballooned in size and they've still got the same people at the head of them who, you know, have kind of been managing them in a sort of very idiosyncratic, haphazard way. And they didn't... and you know, it's kind of become their personal fiefdom. Um, And there was one of the complaints made about John Rappaport was someone who had worked for him and said that he was texting her so often at the weekend and asking her to do personal errands that she spoke to HR. And but it just continued because there's just no, um, you know, those mechanisms aren't in place to protect people like you might have at like an organised corporation. It's all under the control of these, you know, sort of mogul type figures. And Faraz, I'm loath to ask you about, uh, you know, the question that is kind of leading uh, Good Morning Britain at the moment. But, it, you know, it is an important story in, in media land. 
which is the pulling of Little Britain and Bo Selector from uh, online streaming services because of black and brown face, essentially. There are other politically correct issues with those programmes, but that's what's brought it to a head with this as the context. What did you make of all of that? And also, what did you make of Jack Carroll, the comedian, tweeting that taking down those shows was a way of avoiding, quote, the real work to counteract racism? I, I'm I'm never a massive fan of uh, of you know knee jerk reactions to to very complex issues. Um, there's no doubt in my mind, and I've I've always had problems with with Borat as a character from Kazakhstan and and what that's done to a whole country. Um, I'd, I'd like to know what this country thinks of Kazakhstan beyond beyond that one character. I mean, obviously, Little Britain was a prime time comedy. Um, we've had the same thing around Bo Selector um, and. Uh, and and so comedy is it you know does play on stereotypes and it's it sometimes the the the, the line has quite clearly been pushed too far to literally just parodying people for what they look like or what they speak like uh, and that is that is problematic my my view is that they are cultural artifacts of their time and I don't believe that they should be erased I I think that I very much support the idea of putting up cards before programming goes out. I mean, we've had this, we had a similar sort of issue around Apu in The Simpsons and, and that character is now gone. Um, but I, I grew up with The Simpsons and at the, for a long time it was the only mainstream Asian character that was, you know, that existed. And, and so, you know, there was a, there was a weird... Uh, disconnect that I had with with a character like that, and and I really do feel that d- deleting all of that history doesn't really serve any value. And what should be done is, I think, what Disney have done previously and what Warner Brothers has done differently, which is put up messaging to say, look, this is an article of its time and it's an artifact of its time. I think Whoopi Goldberg did a similar sort of thing around Dumbo, um, and it's it's not appropriate and it's not relevant now, but we are keeping it uncut because it's important to know how how that content existed content existed in that time i think the reason that people have been so um shocked by this and have reacted in the way they have is it because it's so recent um, i mean the gone wind the wind argument is different because it's such an old film and we all know that racism existed in that time and we've gone through lots of pain and hardship to get there but the fact that we're talking about comedy shows that existed and were commissioned while some of us were still working in television really goes to demonstrate how much further we do need to go. So, but and, the, yeah, on that, to, though, because, like, the, the warning that Disney Plus put up, for example, the disclaimer is, this show contains outdated cultural depictions. If you take something like Little Britain, it was made in a completely different era politically, so the context is different in that... Um, I'm speaking for them here, and I, I have no permission to do so, but I'd imagine, at the time, if you asked them, Lucas and Williams would have seen themselves and I know that they're both white men, etc., but they would have seen themselves as basically post-politically correct comedians. They, they, and especially since they were projecting such a gay image as well, they would have seen themselves... And it was themselves- called Little Britain. And it was called Little you know, Britain. So it was about... It was basically... The joke was, what would happen if the two Ronnies were in a multicultural world, right? That was the joke. Yeah. They'll play all the characters just like Eddie Murphy did in Coming to America, and it's a backlash against a Blair-led new Labour government, which is all about political correctness, not to be seen in the context of a kind of UKIP-fearing Tory government we have now. So it is from a different era politically. It's not actually necessarily that the racial caricatures are any more or less palatable than they were. It's that the joke but, is interpreted differently. Right, but I think I think the, the, the way that this has been rolled out and the messaging around this is, is, is what's fallen down. I cannot 
see a situation where BBC Worldwide and and the BBC themselves don't bring back Little Britain or back onto SFOD services. I can't see the fact that they're just going to delete that whole era of comedy completely. I imagine what's happening is that behind the scenes, somebody's having a conversation with Matt Lucas and David Walliams to kind of do an intro to that show that when you watch it beforehand, they say exactly what you just said and and say, look, we apologise if it's causes offence and uh, this is this is something that we did at the time and some of it is not quite right now and etc. That's probably what will end up happening. The problem is, is that like they've just gone, let's just delete it because people are, are are getting a bit upset and and that projects a bad image on across everybody and creates a false debate about what we need to talk about which is what is appropriate on screen what isn't appropriate on screen when can we make jokes about things and when can we impersonate things and how far do we go to impersonate i think that's a good part of comedy discourse and i, mm. I don't want to lose impersonations i don't want to lose um uh, the ability to to laugh at people um, and and try to caricature them um, simply because we're too worried about how uh, we we portray them on screen by what they look like. Um, you know, we need to have that debate and not just simply go they're off limits because of the way they look. That's going to be problematic, I think. And what did you make for us of um, uh, Lee Francis's apology for Bo Selector? Uh, it was very interesting to me that he posted it as Keith Lemon because that's where his social media following is. But he started the tweet by saying, hello, I'm Lee Francis and I play a comedy character called Keith Lemon. And suddenly you're looking at a very introspective man. Did you believe him? Yeah, I, th- I think, I mean, I, I watched that Instagram when it when it went up and I, I you do get a real sense of remorse from him in the sense that he's just realised what he's done. It's, it's quite shocking that he has just realised what he's done. I mean, if you remember Bo Selector, all the principal characters were black characters. Michael Jackson, Craig David, um, Trisha Goodard, uh, Mel B, all of the main characters that, that Avid Merian or Lee Francis or, or um, Keith Lemon portrayed were, were black characters and, and that, that is you know you would hope that there was a commissioner that looked at that and went this is a bit weird um but for whatever reason they didn't and i think that you know even keith lemon's character now on celebrity juice which is effectively i've got blonde haired blue-eyed girls on either side of my panel and i'm making jokes about them is going to be seen as problematic in the future and 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 so again it's comedy of its time but it but i do think that we need to kind of scrutinize it a little bit more christina I see that as problematic now. I have always hated that show. Uh, well, exactly. or shall I say the character Keith Lemon. I, d- I just don't understand why this is on air or why it's tolerated by by his female presenters. I just have no idea. I, I cannot fathom why it, both Select was acceptable then, but then also why the character of Keith Lemon is acceptable now. Neither one of those are acceptable for me. Um, they were both problematic. I suppose he's playing the fool, isn't he? The idea is like you're laughing at him for objectifying women and the women are in on the joke, but it's on thin ice, isn't it? <laughs> it, it I, the ice is cracking. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we will be back with more media news after this. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Welcome back to the Media Podcast. Christina, Rebecca and Faraz are still with me. Okay, let's pivot now to digital journalism because Microsoft has just replaced its human news editors with artificial intelligence software. Uh, Rebecca, tell us more about this. Uh, Yeah, this happened uh, very recently, actually. Um, Basically, I think it was a couple of dozen journalists were told that they were no longer required by uh, Microsoft to run MSN.com and also the... Um, news feed for their Edge browser um, because the the technology had finally been perfected and now robots could replace them. Um, worth noting that they don't actually write their own content from scratch. They you take content from elsewhere and sometimes they tweak it a little bit, but they, the technology isn't that good, luckily for people like me, that it can produce original content that's indistinguishable. Um, and don't then, get AI testing gin. Yeah. yeah. And then very promptly... <laughs> Uh, as they were trialing the the beta version of this technology, um, it turns out that it cannot tell the difference between the two mixed race members of Little Mix. Putting a picture of Leanne on a story about Jade um, and Jade subsequently took to social media to call MSN out for doing this. I think the consensus seems to be that at that moment, she thought it was a human error and was calling out the, the as you would rightly assume, human editors, uh, but she was actually calling out the AI technology, um, and I mean, yeah. But I mean, as if that makes it okay. No, I mean, no. That's, that's well, worse. I mean, oh, it's it delegated was, to a computer, so I shouldn't be upset about it. I mean, it was probably quite rewarding for the journalist who'd just been laid off um, to see that this had been the first major news story involving the new technology. Um, and I mean, it's far from the first time that AI has been involved in scandals to do with um, racial recognition. Um, the, obviously, there was the infamous. Um, Nikon camera incident 2010 when people were taking photos of um, Asian subjects and they were being asked, did somebody blink because the machine technology hadn't been trained to recognize um, a wide diversity of faces, you know, and you had Google photos, which was classifying photos of black people as chimps. Um, which uh, it still hasn't been resolved. I was looking at this, this was in 2016, I think. And I had a quick look before we started. And basically what they did is they stopped Google Photos categorizing any photos of, as being of gorillas or chimpanzees. So they obviously still haven't managed to fine tune that technology. So they've just put in, you know, kind of an ugly workaround. So yeah, this is, you know, far from the first time that we've run up against this kind of, this kind of incident. And that goes to speak to the implicit racial bias of, of artificial intelligence, doesn't it, Christina? It's not, no human obviously has designed a program that's going to do that. It's going to land them in all this hot water. One thing that I absolutely would like to stress is that AI isn't necessary. it's not racially biased, it's the people who program it. 
who are the ones who are racially biased and therefore that makes the AI racially biased. And so sometimes if it's just hoovering up data, the people who program it is it's just the general public, isn't it? I mean that's the problem. If it's if it's scraping the internet, it's not even about the programmers, it's just about what's out there. In part, so there'll be it will be a combination of both. So it's the programming of the software. So AI is essentially it's engineered to behave and perform in a certain way. Um, but then it's also asked to learn from us, from our behavior which means that it's doing both it's more I, I I always see that AI as a reflection of the society that it's in rather than um, a problem in and of itself um, and so I, I think that like so many of these issues we should probably be questioning our own behavior online and in developing these technologies um, uh, and those and those questions will help prohibit those sorts of failings. But also for Raz, I mean, of all companies at the moment, Microsoft, you know, who own Teams and a big chunk of Zoom, which we're using right now, and Skype. I mean, you would think right now, with the world literally talking using their products all the time, of all companies, they would have enough money swilling around to not fire a load of journalists and replace them with computers. <laughs> I know they work in AI, but... You know, if they're doing it, what hope everyone else? Well, I mean, if I was a conspiracy theorist, I would say that if they could get this right for MSN, then they can sell that product to newsrooms across lots of different places. And right. and, and I think any any publisher would kind of go, well, hang on a minute, if I could save loads of money, staffing is always a big, big expense. And if Microsoft can develop a product that can save lots of people lots of money, then, then you know, I imagine that they want to get that right. And, you know, while that sounds like a terrifying proposition... We do have to remember that there are a lot of newspapers right now that are, that are in a lot of trouble. And, and the, the democratic values of not having any local newspapers, for instance, and uh, and the fact that they're all kind of really, really struggling at the moment means that cost savings that stop publications being shut down is is something that is attractive uh, across the board. And, you know, as much as I don't want to see journalists lose their jobs, I think that there is a, a market for a product that will allow things like this to, particularly if it is just PR um, shots that are just being reposted for entertainment value, like this story probably was, mm. um, that is, you know, that is going to be attractive to to certain places. So I can see why Microsoft want to get this product right. And if they can get it right in their own space, then then the value is going to be it's going to be quite high for them. So that's probably why they're doing it. But I, I think I, I really agree with what Christina was saying. A lot of it comes down to how these things are programmed. I mean, I remember a story about Lukaku and, and Stormzy that uh, an Irish newspaper put out where they put up a picture of Stormzy rather than the man you strike Lukaku about his his premiership transfer just because they both look similar um, and, and that, that causes problems. And, and the result of that means that there is lots of press about how Lukaku has been mistaken for Stormzy. And if you're an AI bot and all you're doing is scraping data about Stormzy and you're getting that picture all the time, then I, I imagine, I'm not an AI specialist, but I imagine that those things are going to cause inherent bias depending on how you program that software. Um, so there are, there are problems that are built in the systemic racism of um and uh, of, of our our industry and and the way the internet works and and I think that there's a lot of work that needs to be done before we can create a product that we can go out and market and start selling but also Rebecca original journalism is expensive but if you're talking about cost cutting this kind of curational journalism actually is cheap isn't it you can get a graduate who's got a brain on their shoulders 
and get them to look through some news sources and curate the homepage of MSN. I mean, that's an important... I know it's a slightly derided brand these days, but it's the homepage nonetheless. It's It's got to be worth your 25 grand a year to just make sure it doesn't balls it up, hasn't it? I mean, you would think so. Um, you know, and it, it's, it is dispiriting to see companies racing to get this technology it's obviously very profitable in the future technology out there before they have made sure that they've completely ironed out you know any of these any of these errors which you know obviously enormously hurtful both to the people you know the individuals involved but then obviously on a wider level as well um but i mean that this is kind of journalism that's very derided you know it's a bit like the listicle or something, you know, it gets a lot of um, derision online. But for a lot of young journalists, that is their first role. And, you mm. know, not everyone has the kind of connections where they can step into, you know, a assistant editor role at, a you know, a mainstream broadsheet. You know, if you're coming into it and you don't have those connections, th- those are the kind of jobs that are going to be your foot in the door. And people do cheapen them in the same way they cheapen jobs, you know, running social media, which, I mean, obviously, Anyone who works in media knows that that those roles are enormously important and they're difficult, um, you know, and they are going to be even more significant in the future. But it's just part of a pattern where these entry level roles are, you know, really devalued. I mean, not saying that they are necessarily, you know, the most challenging jobs or, you know, the most important jobs, but they do represent a valuable foot in the door for a lot of people. Yeah, and you imagine the sort of long-term value of teaching those journalists how to write copy that people are searching for is actually a useful skill as well. And I was speaking to a news editor the other day who was telling me his first job was basically spending a year writing what time is Tesco open on Christmas Day articles, which would rank incredibly highly, um, but were just there, you know, to get hits to the website. But actually, once you realise what people are searching for, that's going to make you, I'm not going to say a better journalist in terms of arbiter of truth, but it's going to make you a journalist who's appealing to a larger audience. That, I mean, that was the first article I ever wrote for the week was, um, was, <laughs> why do the, was why do the clocks go forward? I was going to say that there's, there's a lot of value in having um, journalists, not just interns, but sometimes some journalists with some experience on um, on those curation platforms. And the reason is, is what we've been talking about today. A journalist can actively pursue stories that represent the community um, that either they're talking about or whether that they're in. Um, and so you don't have... a have a sea of white faces, as Renee might say, on a on a platform. Um, it's you would kind of hire people to make sure that they exercise that kind of editorial judgment. Okay, let's uh, talk about the BBC now. I'm laughing because it's fascinating to have an edition of the Media Podcast where the announcement of a new Director General is this far down in the running order. (laughs) There has been a lot going on. Uh, But yes, we do have a new DG of the BBC. It is Tim Davey. Uh, Faraz, what do we know about Tim Davey? So Tim Davey used to uh, look after audio music at the BBC um, and then he was working at BBC Studios. So he's, he's had kind of quite a breadth of the... Uh, of experience across the BBC. He previously worked for PepsiCo, um, so he's got a kind of commercial head on his shoulders as well, which is going to be useful for the BBC, particularly in in the in the direction they're going in right now, and with the new BBC BBC Studios, which was BBC Worldwide, becoming a bigger and more important part of what the BBC is. Um, I, I think that there was a a bit of a shock in the industry. I think it was generally seen as Charlotte Moore's job, um, and she has done a, an excellent job of running. BBC television for, for quite a long time. But I think as things have changed for everybody in every single different situation um, across the board, having Tim's commercial experience, uh, sorry, to Mr. Davey, 
Is he a sir yet? Yeah, sir, he'll be a sir eventually, I'm sure. But having uh, uh, having <laughs> Tim Davies' experience, a lord, yeah, having Tim Davies' experience um, from the commercial sector, from the audio sector, which I think is becoming more important for the BBC, and and as well as having an understanding of how television works and uh, how independent production companies work as well, is is going to be very very useful, particularly that negotiating experience um, that's going to be required as we get into the uh, the troubled, treacherous waters of license free renegotiation. More important than you think for us than the optics of again having a man in this role. You know, everyone's I, been saying I, for literally twenty years it'll be a woman next time. Do I think it's it's great that another Oxbridge educated white man has got the, the top job at the BBC? No, it's it sucks. But like the the reality is is that um we've got to decide about well, it's not we. It wasn't I had, I had no involvement in it, but the, the board have got to decide about, you know, what it's gonna need moving forward um from the BBC. And I think the 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 point is is that it is frustrating that there are not candidates from a very small pool of of white Oxbridge men that can solve those problems and and that is a systemic issue a- across the industry. Uh, yeah, I, but, I think but fa- I, I get what you're saying, but we're not talking about white Oxbridge men generally. Tim Davy versus Charlotte Moore. Charlotte Moore, despite all the other things she had going for her, the big thing as well was she was a woman. And nonetheless, they chose Tim Davey for the reasons you outlined. Was that right? Yeah. Like, basically, I suppose what I'm saying is, is commercial now the most important thing for the BBC at the moment? And why? Well, I think being being good at, you know, doing that job in the best possible way is, is what's important. Um, and I think if it, if it was a shootout between Charlotte and Tim, the, the question has to be... What, what what do you need? What experience do you need to to you know run that ship in the way you want to run it? And I I would be if if I was Charlotte or if it was me, I would be incredibly frustrated if it was the story was well I only got that job because of my ethnicity. And I think for Charlotte it would be incredibly frustrating if she found out that the only reason she got that job was because of her gender. Um and and so we have to be careful about what the the resulting optics of that are. The, the the issue is not really about Charlotte or Tim. The issue is, why is it that we have not got somebody or the BBC can't attract somebody who is female, who is from a different background to to do that role and to do that job? And that's what needs to be looked at. But on the commercial thing, Christina, is is do you agree that is the most important? I mean, it seems to me that's what they're saying. That is the most important thing. We're getting the guy who headed BBC Studios to head the BBC proper at the time of the 100th birthday of the BBC, the licence fee settlement, making sure that audiences that migrate to Netflix are still happy to play for iPlayer, keeping news impartial. I mean, there's a lot of challenges going on. And the most important thing is we've got someone who can keep money coming in, or at least knows how to manage the money. I think that that's in spite of all those changes. I feel like the changes that you, or uh, the the initiatives that you've mentioned um, have always been in the scope of what the BBC has to do. They've always had to, had a challenge of impartiality. So um, bringing in somebody that has a commercial edge, I think it's great for the BBC. Um, I think they do have a lot of competition. They're going to have to think about ways um, they can finance themselves a little bit better. Um, And I think that Tim Davey um, was a good choice. And if you ever worked in radio uh, on the audio side of the BBC, Tim Davey's appointment actually is not much much of a surprise. It wasn't one for me either. Why? Uh, He he, he was almost, I don't hate to say it, it was almost like he was shaped to do it. Um, (laughs) I don't know whether that was uh, a case of him being favourable within the corporation. 
um that might be pro- may or may not be problematic but for sure um his career trajectory or gave all the indications that that was what he was going for and rebecca as the person on the panel who doesn't stand to have a program commissioned by this man or someone who serves him <laughs> what did you make of it well, I mean, he's already, um, he was acting director general briefly in the aftermath of the Jimmy Savile scandal. So I think he's he's probably seen the job at its most challenging. I doubt things like, you know, competing with Netflix are, are going to compare to the very intense public scrutiny that that brought on the BBC. Um, but there are a lot of challenges, obviously, ahead. I mean, defund the BBC was trending on Monday, although there was an interesting piece on the conversation that kind of implied that that was probably due to bots um, basically getting it to trend overnight. Um, and that was that's obviously one huge area, though. I mean, that does tap into a very, you know, whether it's bots causing it to trend or not, there is obviously a very real discontent with the BBC. Um, although I did think it was telling that I had to look quite hard to find out whether the person who organised the defund the BBC petition was petitioning from a left-wing or a right-wing perspective. Um, it turns out they were protesting against the supposedly anti-government stance the BBC has been taking over the Black Lives Matter protests. But, you know, I wouldn't have been surprised if it had been, you know, a, an irate ex-Corbynista uh, pissed off with the way that they're portraying Labour. So it just goes to show, you know, one of the things that, that Davey is going to be up against, you know, along with all of the competing with streaming and the BBC News, etc. But also, I don't know if you heard Jane Garvey on the show uh, a couple of editions ago, tub thumping <laughs> proudly everything that was happening at the BBC and how they've covered the pandemic and how public trust has been won back and how it seemed such a long time ago that the government were having a go at the BBC and how the future model must be sort of certain now because the public clings so desperately to auntie. I did think of you, Faraz, at the time that she was saying all that, because you did predict this on the show shortly before the pandemic. You were on the last episode in kind of normal times when we were sitting around in the bar. Uh, and, and you said, if this is going to be good for anyone, it will be good for the BBC because they are impartial news and they're going to rise to the challenge. Do you still hold did that? Did I say view? that? Basically, oh, you didn't that say that. That sound quite me. clever. Yeah. Oh, can I get but, a clip of that recording? I'd quite like that. I also, I also predicted that um, Tony Hall was going to step down as well. So I'm, I'm yeah, doing about two right, years ago. It? Yeah. But yeah. anyway. Well, I like um, that anyway. <laughs> but you did sort of say that. And um, I wonder how you feel about that now. Whether actually you think that just because of the news cycle, the BBC has just naturally negated some of these issues. Yeah, and it's and it's not just a news cycle. It's you know the work that's been done in children's and education has been incredibly invaluable to parents. I, I think the entertainment work that's been done is going to be incredibly valuable moving forward um, uh, as we try and find some joy and happiness out of this mad situation that we're in right now. Um, the representation work that they're doing across the board because they're not commercially funded means that they can stick their neck out a little bit more. I, I think all of those things are, are really really valuable and really demonstrates why having a public service broadcaster is essential in times like these and. Um, you know, unfortunately, for, for better or worse, well, actually, I'd argue for, uh, for a lot worse, we've just been mired in political discourse for such a long time around the Brexit vote, around general elections, around, you know, as we talked about earlier, kind of extreme left and extreme right views. And, and so to have something that is equalising and to need good, strong information and scrutiny around something that isn't a political issue, it is a health issue or an education issue, 
that has been where the BBC do really, really well. And and I think that not having a summer of sport and music, which is where generally the BBC ticks up in their in, in their appreciation with audiences, um, and still being able to to kind of have that level of audience satisfaction and 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 trust, I think is a is a really, really strong thing and, and demonstrates why we should be proud of the BBC and continue to advocate for it. And Rebecca, the corporations asked Roger Sambrook, who's currently Director of Journalism at Cardiff University, to review its social media policy. Um, yeah, basically it's the uh, repeated scandals uh, that have emerged over BBC journalists and things that they have either posted or liked or shared on social media, um, which has caused their impartiality to be brought into disrepute. Um, this actually, he was actually brought into the role before the Emily Maitlis um, incident. Um, but obviously that's kind of emblematic of the sort of thing. Uh, apparently he'll also be looking at whether BBC accounts should be using um, inflammatory moments and trying to get them to go viral. You know, you see it after question time's been on, you know, the official account will share the most rabble-rousing eclipse. Okay, Faraz, what do you think he's going to conclude? I mean, jumping the gun a bit, but what do you reckon he's going to say? I'll, I'll give him a call and find out. I don't know, I have no <laughs> idea. what he's, It's a really complicated problem. And I think actually it's going to be one of the big issues for Tim Davey. It's like, the, the reality is, is that social media and the way that social media works re- requires outrage. And if the BBC are going to get noticed in that space, then, then yes, they are going to clip things from from different programs out of context like the Emily Maitlis clip or, or like the question time clip that's going to that's going to cause problems and and I think that the BBC needs to make a really strong decision about how it wants to conduct itself within particularly around BBC brands within that space because there it doesn't make any sense for the newsroom to proudly be impartial but then put out clips without context and without debate and without discourse in the hope that they are going to go viral or, or, or kind of get attention and, and kind of be part of the attention economy. And, and that is a, a problem that they're going to need to solve. Christina? This may or may not be relevant, but from my work as a producer, when you are sitting in the newsroom, um, and especially if you're a social media producer, you are somewhat under pressure to get the highest engagement you possibly can and so I feel like that that's yes there's a broader BBC issue to conversation to be had but when you're asking social media um, producers to say uh, when you're asking them to get as many clicks or as much engagement as possible that's what they're going to resort to Um, and so I, I, I would open to the panel like what 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 would you expect a social media producer to to do in those cases well, I, I think the answer is quite simple. I, I, for me, I don't understand why the BBC feels like they need to get those clicks or they need to get that. You know, they're not a commercially funded organisation. It's not like then, you know, their news channel isn't there to be the most popular news channel. It's to be the most trusted news channel. And if their social media accounts don't follow the same part plan, it, it's going to be problematic. If you're going to go, well, you know, we want our social media to be better and more engaged and, you know, be be shared more than anywhere else, then, then yes, that, that you're actually tipping yourself into commercial um, uh, motivations for the content that you're putting out. And, and then you get into the kind of Fox News territory of going, well, what's the most scandalous, ridiculous thing that we can say? Well, sort so of, that people but see no arrivals. one looking at, I mean, no one who's socially fluent or social media fluent looks at the quote of one individual, say, on a BBC News account and thinks that's the view of the BBC when they can see that the BBC then interviewed someone else. I mean, just because you've tweeted what Nigel Farage said, if you follow it up with what Jeremy Corbyn said, that in itself is balance, isn't it? That's what the BBC does. It interviews both of them. But it's not not balance if the audience for 
for Nigel Farage's tweet is is significantly bigger than the audience for you know uh, um, Owen Jones's tweet or or somebody that's on the other side of the debate's tweet. If if you're not going to get the same amount of retweets, it's it's not like the way that TV is set up, which is, you know, we put something out and it's broadcast at this time and it is within a package and it's balanced within that package and and you can see what the debate is. If you're clipping out part of that, putting it online and it's part of a bigger stream of what's going on, then you have to look at that one piece of content and see if that one piece of content has has balance. You can't look at it within the within the, you know what have Newsnight put out across the last four hours because some of it will not you know, will not get an audience, and some of it will, because that's how social media works. It's it's not the same as going well. So long as we put the same amount of tweets out on both sides, then it's it's fine. It's it's the audience of that one piece of content that we need to consider. Okay, bit of sad news, I'm afraid. Before we move on to the media quiz uh, for staff at Dennis Publishing. Uh, Rebecca, you used to work there. Tell us what's going on. Yeah, so I, I worked there until um, October of last year. Um, so the news is that a quarter of Dennis's staff, which is about 120 people, are facing potential redundancy. And of those, I think the role, the idea is to cut about half of those roles. So about 60 roles in total are going to be going. It's very, it's like obviously very sad news. Um, and I think obviously we're going to see stories like this replicated across the media. We already saw today um, News UK is considering um, what role is going to be cut? You know, it's a question of when rather than if there as well. Um, I think Bauer as well have said, haven't they, that yeah, a number of I, their 100 titles are not going to be sustainable when coronavirus ends. I think what's particularly, you know, I think businesses like Dennis are going to be particularly affected. You know, they've got the mainstream flagship titles, you know, they've got The Week, but they've also got, you know, a myriad of smaller niche publications, you know, that may not sell a huge amount of copies or bring in huge amounts of revenue, but they've got a very dedicated audience. You know, you've got like PC Pro and, you know, things like that, that are, they're to a very targeted audience. And I think this is, I think, unfortunately, in the aftermath of the coronavirus pandemic and the effect that it's had, we are going to see a particularly devastating impact on those niche publications, many of which have managed to weather a surprising amount of storms, especially in recent years. But uh, I think this might be the the final straw for a lot of those. Okay, there is just time to play our legendary media quiz. Today, in celebration of Alan Carr reviving familiar old formats for his epic game show series on ITV, it is time for us to play your cards right. I'm going to start you off with a presenter's name and the number of game shows they've hosted, according to stats from UKGameshows.com. All you have to do is tell me if the number of game shows the next host I give you is higher or lower. If you get the answer right, you stay in the game. Wrong, and you're at. We will play in alphabetical order, so we will start with you, Christina. Sue Perkins has been the main host on 11 game shows from the British Bake Off to one called Casting Couch, which apparently was about celeb gossip. What I want to know, Christina, is whether the number of game shows hosted by Sue's comedy partner Mel Gedroich is higher or lower? Lower. The answer is lower. Mel has hosted 10 game shows, including Draw It and Pitch Battle. (laughs) Whereas, is the number of game shows hosted by Julian Clary... Higher or lower than Mel Gedroich's 10? Oh, hang on. I'm trying to do... So I think that Julian's hosted less shows, so that's lower, right? That's that's how maths works. Yep, (laughs) it's correct. (laughs) That's how numbers works. Julian Clary has hosted eight game shows, including Mr and Mrs and The Underdog Show. That's astonishing. Uh, Rebecca, is the number of game shows hosted by Reggie Yates higher or lower than Julian Clary's eight? Reggie Yates... (laughs) 
I'm going to go against my inclination and say higher. You are correct. That was the uh, the curveball question. <laughs> Unbelievably, despite me never having seen a show uh, of a quiz format hosted by Reggie Yates, he's apparently hosted 10. But these, uh, I guess, I, these are probably back in the days of when he was like a real youth. He was like a youth person when he was young. Yeah. I bet they oh, were like the youth-orientated uh, game shows. Helen Zaltzman and I used to go for meetings at Indies where there'd be a big whiteboard and his name would be on it and uh, George Lamb and at the bottom would just say Helen Ollie question mark <laughs> so I remember those days <laughs> I never got to do a game show um, <laughs> but he's hosted 10 including Celebrity Scissorhands and The Voice if you count that as a game show oh. uh, right Christina uh, is the number of game shows hosted by Richard Bacon higher or lower than Reggie Yates's 10 again higher. I can't think of a single Richard Bacon game show <laughs> no so I can't I'm just going to go for higher <laughs> Okay. This is bad. No one's dropping out. You're correct. Uh, Richard has hosted nine game shows, including Back to Reality and the Big Painting Challenge. Oh, yeah. Back to Reality was that a game show? I don't. That was is a reality show. Is the Great show, Painting Challenge really a game show? Yeah, I'm, I'm questioning I the rules on my enough. own show here. This is why I've never got to host a game show. I've got to stick to the rules. Uh, uh, and uh, Faraz. Um, <clears throat> please get this wrong. Uh, is the number of game shows hosted by Davina McCall higher or lower than nine? What? Oh, it's got to be higher. Davina's hosted every game show known to man. Correct. This is never going to end. <laughs> Davina has hosted 14 game shows from God's Gift to the Vault. <laughs> um, I, I, this will get someone out, I think. Rebecca, oh, Bruce Forsyth, host of Play Your Cards Right. Yeah. Has he hosted higher or lower than 14? Uh, I see you coming, Ollie, and I'm I'm sure that it's lower because he hosted a few, but they were just really good ones. Yeah, they were classics and only 10. In this context, that doesn't seem very many. When you think Brucey, you think game shows, don't you? Uh, I mean, I'm just exhausted by this. Christina, has Zoe Ball... Oh, stop. Come on. ...than Brucey's 10? Oh, just lower. Let's just go for lower. <sighs> Yes. No, 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 no. Sorry, no. you're right. You're right. No, you're right. Zoe Ball has hosted lower, so you're right. You're still in the game. Oh, no. Faraz, make this stop. Has Sandy Toxford hosted higher or lower than Zoe Ball's nine game shows? <laughs> the audience will help you. Uh, lower. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to end this now. Uh, Sandy Toxvig has hosted eight. Um, <laughs> we're going we're gonna to finish before... Um, I think Zoom kicks us all off for abusing their service. Um, that means there is no winner of the media quiz this week. Uh, but I, I think Christina was the most spirited player, so I'm I'm going to give it to her. Oh, thanks. There was none of this kind of second guessing like Rebecca. And, hey. uh, and Faraz was enjoying sabotaging it, so Christina wins. Um, so congratulations. I get the A uh, for effort. <laughs> well, that is it for today. Uh, my thanks to Faraz Osman, Christina Moore and Rebecca Messina. If you enjoyed our episode today and you want to help us make more, why not take out a voluntary subscription? You can head to themediapodcast.com slash donate and choose an amount to keep us going all year round. You can also catch up with our previous episodes and get new ones as soon as they're released by subscribing for free via our website, themediapodcast.com. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Rebecca Grisdale, Sherry, The Media Podcast is a PPM production, and until next time, keep dancing! Marketers and business owners, you've been pining after a certain someone. Your job's on the line. You're desperate for them to like you back. Here's a word of advice from me. Talking is hot. 
just you and them finally alone like us two right now. Maybe under the duvet, headphones on, one-on-one. Podcast advertising is proven to be one of the best ways to catch their attention. So surprise them while they're tuned in, while the moment's right. Say a line or two that really gets them going. Next time, if you want to win over your special someone and build some brand love, experiment with something new, just focus on your voice. Advertise on more than 100,000 podcast shows with Acast. Head to go.acast.com closer to get started.